As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. And I think all the clubs around the world have the feeling that if you want to win this competition, you have to beat Real Madrid. Hello, welcome to the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. It's Champions League week on the pod. I'm Ali Maxwell. On today's episode, I'll be getting the thoughts and analysis of Michael Cox, Liam Tharm and Mark Carey on the Champions League quarterfinals that were completed this week. And we will look ahead to the semifinals that take place in just under three weeks' time. Following this episode in the next few days, you can also listen to a preview of the women's UEFA Champions League semifinals. Chelsea, Barcelona, Arsenal, Wolfsburg. That'll be available on Friday afternoon. But we'll start with Wednesday night's Champions League game between Bayern Munich and Manchester City, which was one all on the night, 4-1 to Manchester City on aggregate. Michael, the first leg was incredibly entertaining. The scoreline one-sided, the balance of play less so. What about the second leg? How did that play out? I don't think it was entertaining, but I thought it was quite enjoyable, if that makes sense. It wasn't entertaining because there wasn't that level of tension in it. We kind of knew who was going to go through from the tie, but there was lots of incident, um, particularly involving Oppenmeccano, so mm. that, that was... Uh, a carryover from the first leg. And even though it wasn't the first time they did it, I, I was just fascinated by the way City played at the back. I mean, they're playing essentially almost five centre-backs. I mean, Akanji, Stones, Diaz, Rodri and Ake all played centre-back at the World Cup. All five of them. Okay, Rodri was a bit of an unusual one because he's a central midfielder who was dropped back there for Luis Enrique. But they're just so comfortable heading away crosses now. And when you think about how they went out last season to Real Madrid, okay, they should have gone through. But basically, Real just chucked it in the box a couple of times and, and they got the breakthrough. Obviously, the next game is going to be against Real Madrid for Manchester City. And they just seem more well-equipped to play that way. It means they can play deeper. Bernardo Silva did an interview after the game where he said, we used to think we had to dominate the whole game. And that's what Guardiola would have done in, in previous years. He would have said, look, to keep a clean sheet, we have to dominate possession, control the ball. And they're able to just soak up pressure more than I've ever seen a Guardiola side do before. And of course, in turn, that means that they can play a different way with Haaland. With his speed on the break, he's so good at finding the spaces. He nearly got Oppenmeccano sent off uh, and celebrated wildly when he thought that had happened. <laughs> and then, of course, later on scored the um, scored the crucial goal. I think they were going to go through anyway, but that really put the tie to bed. So, yeah, it was quite interesting, despite the fact that we knew City were going through. 
I mean, on the note of them not dominating possession, I looked at their their field tilt, which we've spoken about before as a sort of a proxy of territorial dominance. It's the share of possession that a team has in the game, considering only touches in the respective attacking third. Uh, and City's field tilt was just 42% last night, which is their lowest in the Champions League in the last five seasons. So it just speaks to your point, Michael, that they were pretty comfortable doing that, as you say. And I think the point on their sort of counter-attacking style and having Haaland is that it's something we've spoken about on this podcast of how... Pep Guardiola's sides are really good in the the league for being able to dominate possession and having that control in that way. And the minute the game becomes too transitional, too chaotic, as we saw last season, it does seem like they sort of fall like a deck of cards. And this was them actually using the transitional moments for the goal to their advantage. And that seems to be where they could maybe have the edge in the, the next game. Yeah, I think a big word for their pressing as well. Um, mm. They're often revered, obviously, for what they can do in possession, but defensively have been really good. Obviously, they've got Bernardo on the right, typically, in Champions League games. They've got Grealish on the left, and they're basically pressed with the wingers. I think we look at Haaland often as someone who's quick, who's physical, that can sort of lead that press, but they've effectively pressed out of what is quite a looks quite as a basic 4-4-2 organised mid-block, but then we'll push the wingers up, really make a front four. Um, it worked really well against Leipzig at, uh, in the home game. Um, worked in the first leg really well. It sort of put Upa Meccano into all those positions where he made those errors, where the wingers are making those pressing uh, movements from the fullback into the centre-backs and sort of forcing teams. It worked better, I think, in the first leg because there was no Chupamuting out ball where they could play more uh, long and more direct. But I'm intrigued to see, given Real are going to play likely a back four, how they adapt to that, particularly with Camavinga, if he's to play left-back as well. Um, based on how sort of Chelsea tried to adapt their press. So it's, uh, I think it's food for thought on both sides, really. I must say as well that it was unlikely that Bayern were going to really genuinely get back into the game. But that Sané miss on, I think, about 15, 16 minutes could have just changed the atmosphere a little bit and there could have been a bit of momentum there. And hindsight's a funny thing and it ended up just kind of being a bit of a drab affair in the final few minutes. But if things would have changed after the, the, getting an early goal... Um, they, they did have the momentum in, in moments. They had quite a lot of transitional moments. Coman had some really good sharp turns and really driving at the defence as well. And it's always one of those as what could have been. But Bayern weren't exactly totally flat in the game. I thought they were strong for quite long periods. Yeah, Coman was was really bright. I think he was probably the best player on the pitch. Mm. And even though Ake is good in those one against one duels, I do think that when you play essentially four centre-backs across the bat line. Sometimes you can struggle against kind of speed and mobility and trickery out wide. And of course, Ake limped off with a hamstring injury. So Laporte came on, yet another centre-back who, well, played centre-back at the World Cup. So <laughs> to fit into my uh, current <laughs> obsession. Um, and you just wonder whether that will be crucial. I mean, not just in the Champions League, but Arsenal next week. I mean, I think Saka might be kind of licking his lips there. Not that Laporte's a bad player by any means, but as a left-back against a tricky winger, I don't know. And the other thing I found interesting was obviously Sané and Cancelo, two former Manchester City players down the same flank. I thought it was interesting to see them against the kind of new breed. I actually didn't think Cancelo was very effective in this game at all. And I mean, he he was the big, uh, the big loser from what Guardiola is doing in the fullback positions. But I thought actually Bayern were a lot brighter when Alfonso Davies came on. And again, I think that the speed, maybe Bayern could have tested them a little bit more or even more with speed. I mean, Davies is literally the last player in world football I'd want to play against. Mm. He's just incredible. I wonder if there's a few different sort of threads that we've discussed over the course of this season and over the course of the last few years, talking about Manchester City and Pep Guardiola, that seem to be coming together here at this time of the season. We've talked at length last week. One of my favourite ever episodes of this podcast was about Pep's evolution over the years. You know, Barcelona under Pep, Bayern 
Man City, Man City 2.0, now Man City 3.0, I dare say. And we talked about how he's always trying to get in front of, of improving the team rather than improving the team when it's too late to do so. Have these two legs been the strongest distillation of that so far? The first leg we had monsters in the press, incredible physicality when they needed to. In this game, amazing transition attacking play. These are notably not things that we've spoken about being the strengths of Manchester City over the last few, few years. Another example, Michael, that Guardiola, who's often pigeonholed as being a certain type of manager, is almost the opposite of dogmatic. We'll just take, we'll do whatever it takes to build a team to win in whichever era they're playing with whichever squad he has. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, they are very different from, I mean, a couple of years ago. Yeah, in every aspect, I would say, despite the fact they have some very similar players. And yeah, they just built, they just look built to kind of get results in kind of difficult situations at times. I mean, I, to go back to my point before, I just think they're going to defend the box so well. Uh, stats from Opta this morning about their aerial dual success rate, which I think we've mentioned before in the Premier League is the highest in the league. And it's just risen pretty much every season over the last five or six years. And yeah, Haaland's made them play differently. At the moment, they do look very strong favourites to win the Champions League. I think you can't underestimate as well having what is maybe quote unquote more of a boring second leg. Um, Pep spoke before, I think it was after the Leipzig game saying that, you know, we've done this at home where we've, we've blown teams away. I think the stats now are up to a 25 game unbeaten run at home in the Champions League, which is the, the longest of uh, any English team ever that uh, even better is sort of a Arsenal under, under Arsene Wenger. And I think it's 22 wins in that time. So they're, they're incredible. But of course there were games you can go back to Spurs in the second leg. I know that was at home, but where they collapsed, they obviously collapsed before at Real Madrid. Uh, you look at the second leg against Monaco as well. So that for them, I think, is the big hurdle to get over of being in a position where, and of course that then leads to, to Pep sort of getting brandishes and overthinker. And I saw before the game last night, they were saying, has he underthought it? Because he'd named three <laughs> three consecutive starting 11s in the same that. way. <laughs> yeah, and you, you feel bad for him by that point. They because do he goes, him on Wednesday morning being like, well, we got a game tonight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Ah, Same team, same team. Yeah, they'll, they'll be fine. So I think, and I think that maybe ties into the point as well about um, sort of having more of sort of a set plan and more fluidity within what you can do. Obviously he's ditched the, the grulish Mares combo that's worked so well in the Premier League to be more in possession and more defensive. So, yeah, I, th I think he's figured things out and they are maybe a bit more of a moments team in both boxes as well, which really helps. But I think that second leg for me in particular is going to be really, really interesting um, in terms of how they deal with that. We learned from our mistakes yeah. of the past and what we understand now is that uh, before we used to think that, oh no, we need to be 90 minutes dominating the game, controlling on their final third. And this competition when you play against Bayern, Munich, PSG, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Liverpool, whatever, you need to, to accept that sometimes you have to defend and you have to be consistent, you have to, to work hard. Yeah, Bernardo Silva was, was really interesting on BT Sport after the game and I guess to parse him, he was talking about the fact that they're learning not to obsess over controlling every moment of a match and I suppose that the subtext there is what we're talking about a lot, them learning to embrace moments of transition and thrive in them a little more maybe than in, in previous years. All stuff that has been levelled against them as reasons why they have not yet won a Champions League. It feels like they're trying to put all those puzzle pieces together, but they will have to get past Real Madrid in the semi-finals, who beat Chelsea 4-0 on aggregate, 2-0 winners this week. Let's start with Real Madrid. A Real Madrid side, Liam, who will be playing in their 11th Champions League semi-final in the last 13 seasons. Uh, they perhaps doing a little less uh, visible, evolving Liam and, uh, well, for understandable reasoning because they're still doing what they do. 
Yeah, an 11th Champions League semi-final in 13 seasons is quite frankly crazy. And of course, uh, a lot of the trophies itself in that time as well. Um, so I don't know. I think I've been slightly frustrated to see a lot of people not maybe give them the, the flowers I think they deserve. Um, maybe just for not being the most expansive sort of positional team that have this clear um, expansive structure the whole time. But... I think, again, they've shown their their credentials in both boxes in terms of having match winners. I thought Rodrigo's role against Chelsea was really interesting. Um, with sort of Vinny on the left, they've got um, more sort of a fixed winger who wants to sort of really hug the touchline, albeit he's a right footer on the left. But, um, you know, you look at his pass map for passes received and there are lots of diagonals to him, lots of switches of play, um, which um, will touch on Chelsea's shape. But I think that really helped him, if anything. But Rodrigo's roaming quite a lot. He was popping up in the midfield third, um, there's a time there's an attack in the second half the end of the a cutback for Benzema who should probably do better but uh, he ends up uh, receiving the ball on the right Rodrigo he plays a pass inside to, to Vinny on the opposite flank and he overlaps him so he runs all the way from the right to the left and um, there's some sort of good discussions now I'm seeing about um, the idea of sort of this uh, positional way of playing versus sort of a more relational way which I believe is sort of more rooted in uh, in South America I'd encourage people to do their own research I'm, I'm not an expert on this but I guess it's the idea that players don't have to play always in these sort of vertical zones or these channels that uh, it's not always about the the positional player we attribute to maybe Guardiola, um, but they've got more freedom to sort of problem solve on their own. They can find the solutions. They've got more sort of freedom to roam. Um, and yeah, Rodrigo ended up sort of scoring, you know, off two sort of very similar cutbacks and um, was fluid and more dynamic. And I think their way of playing even though Chelsea might have created chances on the night, I think you look at who the chances fell to on Real's side compared to Chelsea. I think that's quite telling from both the starting eleven and the actual approach of the team as well. I thought that was quite notable actually in the way that Real played in the game against Barcelona in the Copa del Rey second leg, where they won 4-0. And there were quite a few moments like that where there were kind of overlaps from weird situations, like desperately crossing the pitch to overlap. So yeah, it does seem to be something they work on rather than just sporadically in that game. So on the note of Rodrigo as well, he absolutely loves the Champions League. So, so this season, he scored five goals in the Champions League. Last season, five goals in the Champions League. Granted, one the season before that, but four the season before that. And you compare that to La Liga this season, where he's only scored five goals in the whole of La Liga. Okay, granted, he doesn't always start from the very beginning, but he steps up when, when the Champions League is on. And Madrid have a team of match winners. You look at that at both ends of the pitch. Um, Benzema, Vinny as well. Players that are a very good you know, you love com Vinny. combination. He's fantastic. But I think as much of a, much as a uh, creator as he is a converter, Courtois uh, is one of the best keepers in the league this season uh, and in the Champions League, sorry, in terms of sort of goals prevented. I think people underrate that. And I know we've spoken before about, um, you know, the need for a more sort of sustainable style of play. And I can see why this doesn't translate to effective league success all the time, because I think it's things you can do more in sort of one-off games or more in knockout ties. But as it's been proven to be, it's really, really hard to beat. Um, they're in a real elite group of sort of uh, Liverpool, City and Bayern plus Real over the, the past five seasons. They've got 30 plus Champions League wins. Only those other three teams uh, join them on that and 100 plus goals as well. But of those four, ironically, they've got the lowest big chance conversion rate at just 42%. So um, maybe they're not completely this um, you know moments team that just, just score one goal off their one big chance again. I think there's, there's more to them than they, they get credit for. I definitely find that interesting and surprising. One of the most visibly composed teams I think I've ever seen, and in particular in the midfield area with Modric and Kroos, but also up front and not just Karim Benzema, who is understandably highly composed because he's so distinguished and he's so experienced and been playing at the very top level for over a decade now. But even those wide players as well seem to feed off the composure of, of, of their teammates. And then... Again, this is very hard to measure, but in my head allows them to step up in those big moments in the big games. And yet, Liam, it's interesting that doesn't necessarily tally with them having had a pretty poor, well, a relative to others, 
poor conversion rate from big chances. Yeah, I wonder if it shows got... it's hard to see things sometimes. <laughs> yeah, the the stats don't lie. I wonder if it's got anything to do with Ancelotti. I guess is a broader question to you guys. As I don't know how much I believe the idea that sort of manager personality really sort of impacts the players, but. I can see why he would keep players composed a lot or at least not rile players up that he seems generally quite relaxed. There was a great point uh, where he was really shouting and barking some orders at um, a couple of players sort of I think midway through the first half but for the most part just seems a manager that you know would stay fairly relaxed and I wonder if that does actually have at least some impact on the team. I guess it's bound to. I was listening to a podcast this morning actually on the flip side of it about how Thomas Tuchel was so irate on the sidelines for Bayern Munich and that sort of fed into the way that Bayern were playing themselves in the game last night. So doesn't surprise me that his teams are similar and they are also like Ancelotti wise owls in, mm. the, in the likes of Luka Modric and uh, and Tony Kroos in that they've got that that calming influence because they've been they've been there they've done it parallels perhaps to uh, training a, a puppy where <laughs> you're often told that if you are nervous anxious if you're a little bit tense then it is fed through either telepathically or via the lead itself into the uh, dog that you're training and that can have a big impact so you know, it's about transmitting your own uh, emotions uh, having said that I suppose the flip side Michael is it hasn't always been plain sailing for Ancelotti and Ancelotti teams his incredible record of, of winning but when things haven't gone well that's when narratives get pointed at him which almost say the opposite which is you know he's been accused of not preparing players as well as other top managers and tactically underthinking perhaps to use that phrase again yeah i mean back in the day there was a bit of a thing about ancelotti that he'd been in charge for two of the the biggest collapses in champions league history obviously the istanbul final in 2005 and was it the year before milan were four one up from the first leg against deportivo and lost three nil but i guess that's so long ago we probably have to put it to one side now i think players just like him uh, it's very very rare that ancelotti's fallen out with a player which considering the clubs he's been at and the players he's worked with i think is is quite remarkable and, you know, a little bit like with Zidane when Zidane was there. I mean, they were top players themselves. Uh, there's not that many who could compete with that. I know Guardiola was a very good player as well, but I do think they kind of just understand real top-level footballers who are, are playing at this level and that does that does help in a way that maybe Tuchel doesn't. And I really like Tuchel as a tactician, but, uh, you know, there is, there is an art to man management that I think Ancelotti is just the best at. Well, he went head-to-head -head with a, a former player, Frank Lampard, in the tactical battle here. And, I mean, you can't say that Lampard didn't try something in the second leg. Um, firstly, a question to the tactics ombudsman, uh, Michael Cox. Am I allowed to call this a 3-6-1? Because that's what, that's what deep down I want to call it in my heart. It was Kepper in goal, uh, Fofana, Thiago Silva, Chalaba, uh, James and Cucurella, the wing-backs, uh, Havertz, the nine. Kovacic, Gallagher, Kante, and Enzo Fernandez. It feels three six one to me. I mean, there's six midfielders if you like, but I'm not sure you can. I mean, six kind of implies like a line of six, which <laughs> would be a bit a bit weird. But I mean, it's quite interesting if you look at it in relation to, like, for example, how Graham Potter played. I think I'm right in saying that Potter's last game, Kukurea and James were the two wide centre backs, and here they were the wing backs, right. and then you had Gallagher and Kante, who are kind of central midfielders, box to box midfielders as advanced midfielders. And then you had Havertz, who kind of is number 10 as a number nine. It's almost like everyone was kind of pushed forward a little bit. But I must say, I kind of understood the logic. I mean, before we even talk about the system, the formation, just kind of loading up on defensive players and midfield players and trying to stay in the game, I think was probably the right approach. I mean, there were so many people, you know what pundits always say on games like this? 
they've got to start quickly. I thought if they started quickly, they'd risk just kind of being blown away. I thought he was trying to play for nil-nil at halftime and then open up and go for it. They didn't really open up and go for it. They only did that when they went 1-0 down. And once they won 1-0 down, I think the tie was beyond them. But I kind of, I do respect for the fact that he was, in terms of strategy, if not tactics, I think he was playing things as he should have done, considering how, how bad Chelsea were against Brighton. You know, if they played an open game, I think they would have got destroyed here. Yeah, it was a great stat pre-match at the starting eleven in all competitions. Collectively had 17 goals scored, nine of which were from Kai Havertz. Uh, Vinicius and Benzema both had more individually, uh, which was just mental by way of comparison. Uh, I think it worked largely in terms of build-up, but you look at who the big chances fell to. Uh, Kante had, I think, a, a volley or a half volley sort of um, off the second phase of a cross uh, at the start of each half fairly early on. Um, and Kukure, of course, had the big chance um, right at the end of the first half, which... The way it works in terms of sort of pushing those wing backs forward, being able to create a front five. Anshotti spoke about um, you know, really struggling with dealing those dealing with those runs from Golo Kante, which are sort of these diagonal runs between um, fullback uh, Eduardo Camavinga and David Alaba in the first half. And it did keep getting Chelsea in behind, to be fair. But the issue then was, I guess, you've got these number 10s in, in Gallagher and Kante who are making the runs and they're being penetrative. But it just got the wrong players in the position to score. You didn't really have um, out-and-out finishes on the pitch, which I guess then really just cements the problem that Chelsea have had all season of making chances and not scoring them. Uh, they had, I think, close to 30 crosses, but only about five of them were accurate. And Real just kept transitioning from them. There were a few attacks where they could break vertically. Um, and then, of course, you've got the situation where you've pushed players forward. At times, they struggled to counter-press and they could quite quickly hit that diagonal out to, to Vinicius and get up the pitch and, and transition. So I think as much of a, a good attacking plan, it had defensive limits limitations to to be honest yeah that one for Kante as well which he snatched at really he could have, he had time to actually bring it down and probably take a strike as well that as you say it was just the wrong people that it was falling to and I looked at who took the the shots in that game and Kai Havertz had three which was the the joint highest but that was alongside Enzo Fernandez as well and you don't want to be having Enzo Fernandez shots from distance as being the the most prolific shooter in that game but indicative of Chelsea's season to be honest but how much they've scored below their expectation in the Champions League. And it's small sample, but that I think that feeds into the point even more that you need to be maximising your chances in the Champions League when there's fewer games. Among all of the quarterfinalists, they've had the biggest underperformance of any side. They've scored five goals fewer than they should based on the quality of chances, which you're, just, you're bound to, to go out of the, the knockout stages when you're scoring that far below. And as I say, it's indicative of, of Chelsea's whole season across all competitions. But um, yeah, I did think that was quite telling. But I looked at who was on the bench and they had Felix, Mudrick, Sterling, Mount, Pulisic and Ziyech. And I'm not suggesting all of those should have started, but some of those obviously came on that they could have maybe gone for the throat a little bit more towards the end, but maybe not necessarily started with them. And I also think, and we can sort of touch on their out of possession strategy, but by about 60 minutes, Wesley Fofana in particular looked absolutely exhausted. Mm. You look at some of the tracking back he's trying to do, it's either in the build-up to the first goal or the second goal, but um, Vinicius ends up way clear of him just because he spent the whole game where Rhys James has been pressing high, trying to sort of pin Camavinga deeper. Uh, and Vinicius just, just kept dropping in and then spinning and running away. And Fofana's had to track him the whole time. He just must be exhausted just doing these sort of, you know, 30, 40-yard sprints mm. constantly. The, the first pair doesn't happen until 67 minutes, which... Again, if your strategy is to sit back and sort of contain, at least by an hour, you're surely going, well, we need two goals here. How, how late do you leave it before you sort of start to uh, impact the game? Yeah, there were some quite funky uh, pressing moves being made, particularly by the wingbacks. Reese James uh, was popping up in some interesting positions. And of course, for the opening goal, it doesn't look great watching back, does it? Kukurea pressing Militao, which is something of a surprise. Uh, quite a lot of space uh, down that side. Chalabert 
trying to motor across and cover and, and ended up being beaten diving in. To me, that's a classic. It's so easy to focus on the individuals there and blame them for those mistakes. And yet it seems completely uh, demonstrative of Chelsea's chaos this season distilled in a goal being conceded, by which I mean this is the third manager that Chelsea have had this season. It is the 99th different tactical system with the 99th different starting 11 with players being asked to do very different things than they would have been asked to do even two weeks ago under a different manager. It's not surprising, Michael, that at the very top level of the game in mid-April towards the end of the season when you're playing against teams like Real Madrid that players are going to end up being exposed and mistakes can happen in games where mistakes cannot happen. Yeah, and again, it's the Real Madrid side who it feels like have been together for about five or six years. I know they haven't because the centre-backs have changed and Rodrigo's come in and Casemiro's left, but it's a very familiar set of players. So I don't think you could have expected Lampard to do much much better really in this time. I know they've been well beaten, but yeah, it just didn't give them much of a chance to be honest. There's a really funny point as well uh, with the first goal as the cutback is played. If you discount Benzema, because I think he's in an offside position, um, Chelsea actually have a 6v3 advantage in the box and they are just completely panicked. Uh, I think Vinicius ends up taking a couple of touches, plays a cutback. And even for the second goal where Rodrigo controls it and like waits for Kepa to come onto him and then sort of, you know, tap it in. Just that difference in composure where, um, you know, you've got Fafana and I think Thiago Silva in a bundle together, like this sheer panic to try and sort of defend the box. And I appreciate it's, you know, a very reactive, very much an emergency thing. But, you know, the mentality difference, I think, is, is quite clear, quite striking. So the semi-final will be Real Madrid against Manchester City, a repeat of the 21-22 semi-final, which was absolute bedlam, Michael. Was it two Rodrigo injury time goals to send it to extra time and a Ben's penalty to to win it? Um, a, a brief reminder of that game, please, before we work out what this time might look like. I mean, there was so much going on, I can barely, <laughs> I can barely explain. But I mean, City should have been out of sight and also they... I mean, Grealish had two chances, I think, on the break in the final minutes of that second leg where he could have won the game. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a brilliant game. I'm not sure there'll be too much similarity this time just because I think City are a very different side now. But um, it does. It was one of those games that shows how difficult it is to go to the Bernabeu and get a result because, they, I mean, they are just a formidable team. I think it's one of the most difficult places to go. Guardiola knows it very well, of course, has played there as Barcelona manager and City manager. Um, so that gives, I do think that gives Real something, but I still think City will be favourites for the tie. We've discussed the steps that City have taken compared to last season in their approach in Champions League games and, and everything coming together for this stage of the season, Liam, it feels. I mean, you've got a couple of weeks before these games, so your thoughts, I'm sure, previewing this will crystallise over the next few weeks, but y your your broad thoughts on, on this semi-final matchup? It's... One, I feel like I'm already overthinking. So I, I swear <laughs> I thought for Pep in this regard, because there we were speaking about their sort of centre-back heavy system, the the three three four three, the odd WM that's worked so well for them. But um, you do feel like it might be a bit silly based on what Chelsea did to leave your right centre-back having to defend um, Vinicius 1v1. And um, whether he makes that sort of slight tweak like he did uh, Leipzig where he played sort of Walker um, at the, the right wing-back or the, the right winger role and actually played Mahrez inside or something similar. I know he likes having Bernardo and all his 
sort of midfielders in for big games. So I think there's a real sort of balance there because I just feel like he, he really seems to hate and despise transitions, hmm. um, particularly against his team. At times, it feels like he doesn't want them for his team either. Did you say he was emotionally exhausted after the, the Bayern first leg as well, where obviously yeah. that became quite transitional. So And looking at what Vinicius did against Chelsea, I think he was largely quite good without having any real end product in terms of really sort of wearing them down. But you just can't continue to allow that many diagonals to him and, you know, not expect at some point some form of um, end product to come about. So... How you adapt to that, I'm not entirely sure because then you'll be compromising a system that's worked so well for you in possession and you've refined over the season. I don't know is the, the real answer, but <laughs> it, it's exciting, I think, more than anything. <laughs> you gave it your best shot of trying. That was good. Um, I think at the broader level, the kind of irrespective of, of tactics, I think it's interesting that the second leg will be at the Etihad rather than last year was at the Bernabeu with the second leg where, you know, as you say, Michael, like Real Madrid is so strong at home that City likewise are very strong at home and knowing what they have to do in the second leg with that strength could be a, a real advantage. And uh, I think it's 25 games unbeaten at home um, in the Champions League and they have a goal difference of 81 to 19. And granted that might be inflated with some sort of group games, but it still shows just how strong they are at home, um, Manchester City. So knowing what they'll have to do for that second leg could be a, a real advantage. And you think, you know, could this be their year? That could be another thing out of Guardiola's control that is you know, in their favour. And if if they can win that, that that's an amazing run to get all the way to a final, let alone before you get the chance to lift the trophy to have beaten Bayern and Real. You might expect to play one of those top teams um, in, in a campaign. The idea that you can play both of them, you know, is is crazy, and I think a good test of where they're at, really. And I know Leipzig was a, a much more a much weaker opposition, but they absolutely mm. smashed them. Mm. I mean, you know, scoreline you don't really see in the Champions League, so it's been pretty impressive. Uh, since the World Cup, City been really good, basically. That was after a bad first leg as well, right? By mm. all intents and purposes. So that, that was, yeah, quote unquote, bad first leg. So, yeah. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Right, on the other side of the draw, Napoli will win the Scudetto. We have discussed that on a podcast a couple of weeks ago. They will not win the Champions League. Knocked out by AC Milan 2-1 on aggregate. Um, We made the case for why Napoli could win the Champions League a couple of weeks ago. Uh, It's gone wrong here. They also lost 4-0 to Milan in Serie A earlier this month. What were the key themes from these Champions League games? Why have Milan been able to better Napoli so consistently in the last month, but clearly been the inferior side over the season as a whole? 
Yeah, Milan had a couple of really good games. Um, the four in particular was uh, an outstanding performance. Um, they matched them up sort of shape-wise. They'd been in sort of a, a back three, more of a 3-4-2-1 when they played Spurs in, in the round of 16. And that came off the back of having initially played a 4-2-3-1 earlier in the calendar year, um, been in a terrible run of form, purely changed things. And, and the personnel was largely the same. It's quite interesting because they often play Brahim Diaz, who you would put on paper as sort of the right winger, but he wears number 10 and plays like a number 10 and, and comes inside a lot, um, which leaves Calabria a right back to sort of push forward. But they don't really have a right winger when they build up. And Liao off the left is feels more like a second striker more than he's a winger. He's quite tall. He often is an outball sort of airily, but um, he'll sort of play inside a lot and Teo Hernandez will overlap him. So I think they're just a bit awkward to defend. Defensively as a unit, they're fantastic. I think Magnon's been excellent. But they, they really sat back well against Napoli in the second leg. They made 44 clearances, which is the um, the second most by any team in a single Champions League game this season and only had 27% possession. So when they've got the transitional effects that they do in, in Rafael Leao and Giroud, when he, I think, is on his game, he can be a bit hit and miss, but can be a really good target man for Leao to play off. Um, they are really capable of sitting back and hitting teams on the break. And that transitional threat has been shown in, in the numbers this season. So I looked at Milan's direct attacks uh, in the Champions League compared with the other quarter finalists. Um, and it shows just how strong they are. So they've had 42 direct attacks, which we've spoken about before. It's a proxy of counter-attacking play. Uh, that's come to be the highest among all of the, the then remaining eight teams that, uh, this season ahead of Napoli, which again kind of makes sense um, in second. So it shows just how much they they utilise their, their strength in transition. And knowing that Rafa Leao is just one of the fastest people to, to play the game at the moment. There's, there's no better example of that than the, the assist that he had for Olivier Giroud, which we definitely needed to mention. What a run this is. Taking on Romani, gets past him as well. And Giroud puts Milan ahead. He takes that one, but that was all the work of Rafael Leal. A wonderful, wonderful solo run. A tap in for Giroud and Milan go two up in the tie. And if you go back to the 4-0 game, um, the two goals that he scores in that breaks a really long duck. I think it was well over 10 games that he hadn't scored in, in the Serie A, dating back to um, before the World Cup. So he's shown at times he can be a big game player. Obviously, I know consistency is generally the, the stick that any sort of winger or forward gets beaten with like that. But um, you know, it, it feels very much like this sort of knockout game could be one where he maybe goes through it or is a bit of a passenger or he comes and you know defines it as the match winner and it doesn't feel like there's really much of an in-between um, which can just make it really exciting to watch which it has been in, in the past few games. Michael, Olivier Giroud as I live and breathe starting up front for a Champions League semi-finalist in 2023. It is so notable that we have to talk about the fact that Giroud feels like he's had double the length of a career as many other strikers of his generation. I mean, he didn't... He won the uh, Ligue 1 title with Montpellier. He was 25 at that point. That was before everything that's come since then. It is so fun to see him still playing in these games. Yeah, a real late developer. I think the one thing he's never had is a great pace. And I tend to think that players who are very good but don't have that much speed, often develop and emerge a little bit later. But I just think they're less notable. I think if you're a if you're a scout and you're trying to find a young player, almost automatically you're looking for pace. I think sometimes they can kind of slip through the cracks. But he's a brilliant player. I, I just absolutely love watching him. He's just brilliant in what he does. You know, the the things that he does, he's the best at time he's near post runs, good in the air, first time finishes. Very good with his back to goal. 
I've loved following his career as much as any player of the last few years. I, I love players who they have very obvious strengths and very obvious weaknesses and just, yeah, he's such a specific type of player. I'm really pleased to see him still doing really well. And I, I think you sort of compare that to Chelsea as a style. It's the exact, I know you've obviously played for Chelsea. It's the sort of number nine they need as a profile. Um, you look at Leal, you look at Brahim Diaz, uh, Benasso as well. All these forwards that, or, or at least advanced midfielders that Chelsea have a lot of in comparable profile. But one of the big parts of the glue sort of of their team, uh, Milan, is that they've got Drew to play into and he can just set these runners. He occupies defenders. Um, there was a period where they tried playing sort of, uh, Piotti tried playing Leal as a number nine. Just didn't quite work as well because he just needs that space to sort of drive into and run off of. And I think having that balance in the team um, without them being always an electric side and always blowing teams out the water gets you far in a knockout stage because you can be adaptable and you can um, tweak yourself within games. And it's the same for the national team as well, right? He was the foil for Kylian Mbappe and we saw it in the the World Cup as well that without him in the side the the whole team looks kind of different even if in the the previous tournament he wasn't he, he didn't score a goal did he and he was still one of the most important players in the side so yeah no surprise at all he missed a penalty in this game we're still talking about him positively <laughs> which goes to show how valuable a player he is to to do something like that in this bigger game and uh, still be praised the same with Haaland of course well it's a lottery isn't it um, <laughs> <laughs> look guys Inter will play against AC Milan in the semi-finals. They got past Benfica, uh, 2-0 up from the first leg. They were in such a strong position. They went ahead early in the second leg. The match actually finished 3-3 on Wednesday night with Benfica scoring twice in, in quite a messy last 10 minutes. But Mark, this was not a close tie into, you know, breezing into the semi-finals. Yeah, I don't think, I think because of the first leg, similar to the the Man City buying game, it didn't really have the the peril that we sort of thought it did. I Benfica, I watched the highlights of it. I must say I watched the other game, obviously, so I didn't watch every minute, but it, it looked as though Benfica had a good effort, but Inter was still kind of on top. And if you look at the the stats, that sort of backs it up a little bit. But um, I think in general, Inter's 3-5-2 is just really strong, really refined now. They've been playing it for quite some time. They really maximise their their strengths of using that system and, and playing wide, stretching the opposition. Um, I looked into their numbers as well, and Inter have had the most open play crosses of any of the remaining quarter, well, the then remaining quarter finalists um, and the fewest through balls as well. So it shows just how much they look to play it wide and, and not sort of penetrate through central areas. Um, Federico De Marco got two assists uh, in the, the game last night from left wing back and he seems to have a kind of a different role to Denzel Dumfries on the, the right in terms of being more of a, a creative force, whereas Dumfries, I guess, is more of a, an off-ball runner to arrive in those advanced areas a little bit more. And um, yeah, DeMarco has the, the most open play crosses in the Champions League for into this season and the highest expected assists as well. So it shows that his remit is, is very much to be the creator from the left. And as I say, Dumfries more to arrive in advanced areas on the right. I like this because it, it strikes me that we've got four fairly different teams, fairly mm. different styles in the semi-final, which is uh, exciting. Of course, not as exciting as the fact that it's literally the Milan derby in the UEFA Champions League semi-final. That's absolutely excellent. And Michael, um, we've seen this before, haven't we? T 20 years ago, great semi-final between these two? Kind of great. It was a bit of a slow burner. I mean, the funny thing about that was, of course, Milan won on away goals, despite the fact that both games were taking place in the same stadium. <laughs> well, one was at the San Siro and one was at the Giuseppe Meazza. Yeah, you can put it like that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm kind of sad for Benfica. I thought they had something really good going this season. I thought they could be almost like that Ajax side of four years ago, you know, emerge from a lesser European league and really go on a big run in, in Champions League. But they've just completely collapsed. I mean, until... 
10 days ago, they'd lost one game all season and another one on a penalty shootout after drawing in the cup, which is not a defeat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now they've lost, th- well, they lost three in a row. And then this wasn't a loss, but obviously drawn, gone out of the competition. I don't know why that is. I don't know whether it's pressure. I don't know whether it's a, a physical thing, whether they're just exhausted, run out of steam. But a few times I've seen them this season, they've been really, really good, played really good football. Um, but yeah, it's just not to be. They still will probably go on and, and win the Portuguese title, I hope. But uh, yeah, not quite the season I had uh, I'd hoped a few months ago. Maybe it's the Enzo Fernandez effect. Take him out of the team, change a little bit. I think it did affect them, but the results were really good even after the the departure of him. True. Um, it's just it's suddenly gone wrong in the last week or so. A bit of a crisis. True. I think the only thing to give Benfica credit for is that they got to the quarterfinals last year as well. So considering all the powerhouses among Europeans, you know, elite sides, to get to two quarterfinals in two years in the Champions League, I think you know credit where credit's due. The models are pretty tight for the. Inter against AC Milan semi-final. Uh, can any of you put forward a favourite or a, a feeling as to who you think may have the edge here? I'm intrigued um, in particular with Inter and how they're going to go about defending uh, Milan's left side because obviously with that um, with the back line you're going to have Leal sort of pushing forward and I think Teo Hernandez is really really underrated as part of that team uh, in the same way for France people talk about Kylian Mbappe but a lot of Mbappe's success for France particularly the World Cup um, came with having Teo Hernandez overlapping him so I think that in attack for me would give um, a big advantage to to Milan but then that is if they still choose to play that way because they match Spurs up for shape playing a 3-4-3 um, whether they do, they do the same against um, Inter particularly because you You've got Sheko and, and Lataro Martinez, who I think people underestimate Lataro's ability to be good sort of back-to-goal play and, and aerial ability, and likewise Sheko's ability to run the channels. You only have to go back to January, um, where Inter beat Milan well in the Super Cup um, out in Saudi Arabia. They won 3-0, um, completely tore them apart in the first half, got the wing-backs really pushing forward and making that 5v4 on the last line. Uh, and Sheko gets a goal from sort of a diagonal run into the channels, the sort of goal you'd associate with Lataro Martinez. But now Inter out of form, so it's you know it's uh, there's enough sort of jeopardy I think within it, and no one's perfect, and they're very different. That I would say fifty fifty to be honest. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they're both in really bad form. They both won one of their last six games in Serie A, which is just bizarre. And then I mean, even looking to Serie A as a kind of form guide is is probably useless considering Milan have just put out Napoli, who are twenty two points clear of them in the league. So. Yeah, I think it's pretty much a 50-50 game, I agree. Well, that's what I was going to say. Because Napoli is so far ahead in Serie A, I guess they can put all their eggs in the Champions League basket. But then I suppose they're still fighting with Roma for a Champions League spot next next year. So I don't know whether they can really take their foot off the gas there. I think it is a really tough call. I think it's a flip of a coin of who could Come on. sit on the fence. Yeah, three, All three of you, <laughs> seriously. I think what do you that, think, I, I think Inter are going to batter Milan. Really? Well, no, I just want a bit of, <laughs> just want a bit of something on this, you know? Um, is it fair to say, and one has to be pretty careful not to go too far here in, in, in case you look stupid in a couple of weeks' time, but is, is it fair to say that the semi-final that contains Manchester City and Real Madrid is much more likely to have the winner of the Champions League than the semi-final that contains the two Milan clubs? Yeah, they're much better teams. Good. <laughs> but I think this is good. I think a, a lopsided draw is quite good because if you had it the other way around you'd have two quite strong favourites for the semis. And then you're watching 180 minutes of football that might just go one way. I'd rather have two games that are quite close. Mm. And then the final is a big event anyway, regardless of who's in it. You've often said that semifinals are often better uh, for the neutral than the final itself. 
I think they are. I think one side having home advantage just makes someone force the running. I think finals can be a bit standoffish and yeah, they're a bit cautious. Yeah. Always cagey. Yeah. They're never a good tactical um, sort of spectacle. We send that with the Arsenal City game. I know it's not um, a final per se, but in, in the Premier League of like those really, really big games, plans just seem to go out the window more because no one wants to lose or even make a mistake. So it's, uh, yeah, I agree. I think I know there are more semi-finals, which helps, but um, big fan. The only thing I'd say is that this season's final is at the Ataturk Stadium in Istanbul. And the last time we had a Champions League final in Istanbul, we got a lot of drama, a lot of goals. So... Do you think that's quite a small sample size, Mark? It's a little bit <laughs> small sample size. I feel, feel like um, correlation <laughs> does not equal causation. I'm just going to trot out all of your lines. That's right. Well, the Liverpool fan in me just had to mention Istanbul. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, I gather it's not impossible the final could be moved because I think that's the week after the elections in Turkey. And that would be incredibly, it'd be the fourth one in a row that would be moved. Because they had two in COVID. One that was due to be Russia, that got moved after the invasion of Ukraine. And then another reason this one could be moved would just be incredible run. Just going back to the semi-final versus final debate. Uh, Michael, would you be in favour of two of a two-legged final? Because <laughs> it feels wrong, doesn't it? But from what you're saying, I, I mean, it was could a bit be right. before my time. I thought, because I used to do that in the UEFA Cup. I thought that was quite cool. I used to do it in the Coppa Italia as well, which was quite fun. I think the issue there is, if it goes to extra time, that's just such an unfair advantage for the home team in in extra time. You can't have away goals in a final. That feels really weird, doesn't it? So straight. To no, pens. I think a one-off event is probably fine. But uh, it's nice. I mean, what is nice is that is a completely different vibe from the semi-finals. It is a different kind of format, mm. if that makes sense. And I just think that variety is quite important as well. Okay. Wow. Pretty excited for the semi-finals of the Champions League, uh, as previewed by Michael Cox, Liam Tharm and Mark Carey with myself, Ali Maxwell. We're actually going back to back this week. An episode will drop tomorrow, previewing the Women's Champions League semi-finals, Barcelona and Chelsea, Wolfsburg and Arsenal. That'll be available on Friday afternoon and next week. The small matter of Manchester City against Arsenal in the Premier League, I think you can be pretty confident that you'll have some of the thoughts of the guys on this podcast feed next week. So make sure you're subscribed. You'll get them as soon as they drop and subscribe to The Athletic as well today at theathletic.com forward slash tactics. You'll pay £1 a month for the first 12 months of your annual subscription. Get involved today. Thanks for listening to The Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic.